Hello, everyone. I hope you're all doing well. Um, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are. Right. It's great to connect with you again. Welcome to uh, this new segment that we just added, NeuroAcademy's Discussion of the Week. And for today's discussion, we're going to pick a paper that was published last week, and it was quite an interesting topic, uh, the use of laxatives and risk of dementia. And since this is NeuroAcademy and we're all um, trying to learn more and more about brain health, and especially when it comes to our science, the Neuroscience Club, we want to dive in deeply into the latest information, the latest science on brain health and lifestyle. And I thought this was a very interesting topic to talk about. It is. I mean, this is a almost like a paraphenomenon, uh, laxatives and brain health and and. It gives us so much information in regards to medication and brain health and also how science has looked at because this paper is uh, quite telling of the, you know, some flaws and, and, and some insights that uh, data can give us. And so we wanted to kind of use this as a, a means of better elucidating, better identifying this relationship between uh, medication and uh, brain health. Yeah, and I think every time we dive into a, a scientific article or we talk about relationships, we don't talk about just that relationship. Yes. We actually learn how to read scientific articles and how to assess them. Because as you know, just like the erythritol people, which was just sensationalism, it's important for us to uh, be comfortable with um, finding out or delineating between good data and poor data. I was listening to somebody speak about um you know, understanding uh, where we are in history is it's it's about getting comfortable with complexity and complexity is never black and white. It's gray and it's evolving. And that's something that humanity is not comfortable with. Genetically, we're not comfortable with that because we we want the absolute um, uh, the absolute survival value. Yes or no? Am I going to survive or not? And literally that concept affects all our logic. The book we're reading right now, which we'll share fairly soon, yes, um, is about this concept that uh, we are so designed to ask for the absolute that it it, it makes us susceptible to uh, fallacies and mistakes uh, because reality is in the gray zone. Reality is in the complexity, and so this this paper and all the other papers will kind of speak to that as well. Amazing. All right. Well, I see you all. Hi, Tom. Hi, Lynn. Magda. Bonnie's here, Cindy, Beverly, all you lovely people have joined us today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, and make sure that you give, give us a thumbs up if you can hear us and see us. And uh, as always, the comment box is open for your comments, um, any input or any questions that you may have. So here we go. So this conversation is about constipation and its relationship with dementia. Um, this, the reason why we're speaking about this is because of what Dean just mentioned, this, this incredible, incredibly strange relationship with, between two different, two very different things. But yeah. I think it's important for us to kind of define certain terms and kind of take a little time to understand exactly. uh, why this is an important relationship. So um, this paper looked at chronic treatment of constipation with laxative use and found out that people who took it had higher risk of dementia. Uh, there are studies that show that as many as, as much as 4% of Americans use laxatives on a regular basis. And, 4%. And the, yeah. So the reason, so laxatives are the medication used to 
affect constipation. Right, right. Yeah. And this number can actually be larger, especially if you consider the inconsistent use of laxatives. And it's been there's evidence that it's under underreported significantly. Exactly. Yeah. So constipation is the main reason why people <clears throat> use laxatives. Um, and in fact, most people live with mild to moderate constipation, even without naming it constipation, which is sad. It is. It is because we have we're so used to this state, this this new GI state where we're not having bowel movements regularly, we're we're having this uh, minor tensions, these these GI aberrancies and abnormalities where we feel overwhelmed by overeating, and they call it food coma. And whenever you name something, it is it's a, it appears as if we've taken care of it. Okay, it's food coma. That's fine. Everybody has it, but it's not. These are not normal things, or this tension, GI tension that we have, which is discomfort, GI symptoms, and all the diseases that follow thereof. We almost take it as if this has always been the case. This is what's been going on. And, and this is part of the normal or a, 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 a range of normal. But we've lost sight of what you know, we should be experiencing as far as our GI life is concerned. Right, exactly. As a matter of fact, uh, I hope that from here on and I hope that people consider constipation as a significant issue, uh, even if it's mild, mild, because it could point to a number of different underlying pathological issues and conditions, lifestyle um, intervention, which needs lifestyle intervention, conditions like eating low-fiber diet, uh, or for example, being chronically dehydrated, or not exercising and not yeah. moving often. Um, or any underlying chronic disease such as diabetes. Which is a very common one. Very common one. Parkinson's disease, chronic pain, which sometimes requires pain medication that result in constipation. Any other endocrine disorders that, sh that causes um, damage and uh, disarray in our hormonal system. And many, many, many more. So, you know, this is essentially a shorter list of all I mean, of that. That's just take one of those diabetes. It's not even diabetes, even pre-diabetics and people with insulin resistance that are uh, borderline. They, there's been studies that have shown that they start having GI symptoms. That relationship is not brought up in clinics because we don't do anything with pre-diabetics. Yet, at, even at the pre-diabetic level, we saw it in dementia and cognitive decline. When we looked at NHANES database, very valid database, 33,000 people, and in the young population, less than 65, people who had insulin resistance and prediabetes had cog lower cognitive state. And that's cognition, which is much more complex downstream product. Imagine, imagine things like constipation, which are easily in early uh, manifestations of um, endocrine disorders and others. So that's an important thing to kind of realize that all of these diseases can cause constipation. Why are we talking about constipation? Because when we're because we are talking about laxatives, the only, one of the main reasons we use, if not the only reason we use uh, laxatives, is in constipation. And the other thing that we see is in in diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, it's a very early manifestation of the disease, right. and we'll talk about that later as well. Yeah. All right. So, a couple of uh, statements uh, according to the American Gastroenterology Association (AGA). Yeah. Constipation is when you have infrequent or hard-to-pass bowel movements, meaning that they're painful or you have to strain, um, have hard stools, or feel like your bowel movements are incomplete. 
Infrequent means less than three bowel movements a week. And by the way, that's a very common thing in Western diet, in Western lifestyle. Mm. Less than three. I mean, and and one of the things we realize, and and especially in the in the circles we 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 live in with this plant uh, plant based world, and where people eat lots of fiber, lots and lots of fiber, having more than one bowel movement a day is common. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's right. Really heaping. I mean, I'm. I'm. It's a little more information. What do they call it? TMI. Yes. Too much, but it's not. It's it's health. So having one or more bowel movements a day is healthy. It's good. It means that it's uh, and and the, and it means so many things. It means that the whole system that creates that, which we'll talk about, is healthy. It means that um, all the toxins. Talk about toxin clearance. There is toxin clearance, which mm-hmm. is the bowel movement that takes uh, toxins away. It means that the hydration and dehydration mechanisms are being worked out. So having at least one bowel movement or at least one bowel movement every other day, if not more than one bowel movement mm-hmm, a day, mm-hmm. is healthy. But majority of Americans and people in, uh, who live a, um, a certain lifestyle ha- have one bowel movement a week or a couple of bowel movements a week, which, yeah. is, which is not healthy by any measure. Right. There, there are several uh, factors that affect the size and the frequency of your bowel as well. I mean... But at least once a day, like you said, is absolutely it's it's absolutely healthy. In any case, moving forward, so getting back to the mechanism of how a stool is formed, as far as you know, um, its consistency, at what forms it. Um, I have to say, you'll you'll be surprised by how incredibly fascinating this whole process is, and why this byproduct stool do, yeah. can actually tell us everything about our health, our nutrient intake, our nutrient utilization, um, the health of different systems, such as the stomach, the intestines, of course, the liver, the gallbladder, the pancreas, and even our blood and immune system. Yeah. yeah. So before we go any further, I think it would be helpful to know the mechanism of how stool is created, and this would give us insight into the study. Uh, when we consume a meal, it's digested, and the digestion process, process usually starts in the mouth, where we start chewing the food and we mix it with the saliva, the saliva contains digestive enzymes, and these break down the carbohydrates, the protein, and the fats that we consume. The food then passes down into the esophagus, and then it goes into the stomach, and there are acids in our stomach that further break down uh, the carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, and then it passes into the small intestine where the pancreas and the liver secrete digestive enzymes, and they further break down the food, and then it passes through the large intestine where water and the mineral is essentially absorbed. And finally, the food is excreted. The liver plays a very important role in the digestive process by producing bile. And this bile actually helps in breaking down fats. The gallbladder stores and releases bile into the small intestine. The pancreas produces enzymes that breaks down the carbohydrates, the proteins and the fats, as well as hormones that regulate blood sugar levels like insulin, Mm -hmm. of course. And the small intestine absorbs the nutrients from the food, and the large intestine absorbs water and mineral. I mean, the so, whole system is involved. Agreed, yes. Uh, and, and that's not even including the endocrine system and the thyroid glands and um, uh, parathyroid and all the other systems that directly and indirectly affect this GI system. And earlier you were saying that from, uh, from just this stool, this, this which seems like a byproduct, a waste, Actually, we can tell so many diseases. Right, exactly. I mean, all the way from anemia to immunological diseases to cancers to um, uh, even neurodegenerative diseases. We talk about exosomes and endosomes at the molecular level. 
we can find byproducts of disease much better at this tool. And there's a reason, like when you go to countries like Germany and others, there are certain toilets in certain places where there's a shelf where it collects the stool. So the idea was to collect that stool and give it to the doctor because that's your major biomarker of health. Mm. Uh, so your stool production frequency type um, consistency is basically your health. Yes, and um, our GI docs will be very happy about us uh, pushing this concept. Right. Yeah. And then along this whole pathway, we have microorganisms. The gut microbiome would actually, which actually interact with the food and helps the food gets absorbed better, create new compounds that actually are very healthful as well. And so there's a lot of interaction between the gut microbiome and the food products as well. Um, so, but 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 the the beauty of the my gut microbiome is the gut microbiome is the ultimate protector. And we learned something fairly new that um, the, one of the doctors that we will be hopefully interviewing fairly soon was talking about the fact that the, the gut microbiome needs nutrients constantly. It needs to eat constantly. So if you're not, and what is its favorite food? Fiber. And if it's not getting fiber and all it's getting is this processed food that we're feeding it, it starts eating away from this protective layer, the mucus, polysaccharide, because the mucus on the gut is polysaccharide. It's, it starts eating that away and it gets to the cell wall and into the GI system and, and actually breaks through the wall. And that's how we start damaging the cell wall of the GI system. So uh, uh, this is the microbiome, besides what you've heard as far as how it creates certain nutrients and molecules and, and, and uh, 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 postbiotic products, it also is a protector. And uh, um, so we really need to feed it the proper foods or otherwise this is uh, what happens. Uh, and when you give it certain medications or if its motility is affected, it also affects the, the relationship between that microbiome and the protective layer of the cells. Absolutely. So in the past, there's been um, linked and associations created or identified between gut issues and brain health issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that when people come into the clinic with, say, conditions like neuropathies, where they don't really feel the ground under their feet or they have numbness or tingling in their fingers and in their toes, um, or for example, if they have some sort of an anemia because of uh, lack of absorption of folic acid and vitamin B12 from the gut, all of those actually have been have been investigated and they have been documented that any issue in the gut can potentially um, be linked to certain chronic neurological diseases. Um, I named neuropathies, but also cognitive diseases, diseases uh, that would essentially point towards a neurodegenerative origin, such as Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Now, there are specific types of symptoms, such as constipation, that have been associated with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. In some papers, like Dean was saying earlier, patients with Parkinson's disease, before they even manifest any tremors or any other signs and symptoms of Parkinson's disease, may have constipation for decades, up to 20 years earlier before the neurodegenerative mm -hmm. diagnosis is made. And it has been demonstrated that in many of these diseases, often the neuronal level in the guts uh, started way before it was detected in the brain. So <clears throat> you can already see that there's a problem, but there is a problem of directionality. We don't know that the constipation led 
to, you know, the changes in um, the neurodegenerative condition or was it the onset of neurodegenerative condition that wasn't quite detected in the brain and it included changes in the GI system as well? It's fairly well accepted now that the, one of the first earliest symptoms of Parkinson's is GI dysmobility, mm-hmm. slowness of movement of GI system and, and um uh, absorption problems and motility problems and constipation, definitely a major cause. Now we know that's true in many of the other dimensions, like cortical basal degeneration and even in Alzheimer's, a very, very early sign. So it, it's not so much that most likely that the GI symptoms cause the dementia, but it's actually an early sign of dementia itself. It's the pathology that starts. So what, you know, the egg and the chicken concept, which caused, you know, came first. And that directionality problem is often missed in research. And here, all of these diseases have that directionality problem, especially the neurodegenerative diseases where the GI symptoms start so much earlier, such as dementia and Parkinson's. So saying that potentially, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, the directionality is something that we really need to look at when we are looking at science. Absolutely. That's why they say um, uh, correlation is not causation. Because in correlation, direction is difficult because there are intervening confounders. And we'll talk about that as well. Absolutely. All right. So let's dive into this paper. So this paper was published um, in March 4th in the Journal of BMC Geriatrics, which is a pretty good journal. Mm -hmm. And the scientists uh, are from, well, there's a combination of different uh, scientists, but most of the authors are from the Shenzhen Institute of Advanced Technology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences in Guangdong, China. Mm-hmm. And the study was funded by the National Science Foundation of China and some other academies of sciences as well. The title was Association of Laxative Use with Incident Dementia and Modifying Effect of Genetic Susceptibility. Um, and they looked at a population-based cohort study with propensity score matching. So propensity score matching, what is it? It is essentially a statistical method in which the researchers use specific techniques to construct an artificial control group. So say, for example, if they're following a a, a, a population, they kind of create a copy of that population so that they can match each treated person with a non-treated person or whatever that unit of comparison maybe in the paper. And so the, they use the, these matches and they can estimate the impact of an intervention. And in this study, the intervention was the use of laxative. So they did a propensity scoring match. And this, this method has been widely used to reduce confounding biases, meaning the effect of something else that can't really be measured very well in observational studies and getting rid of the bias. So the study was pretty large. So they followed 502 502,000, more than yeah. 500, more than 502,000 people. And this was homed in the UK Biobank database. You may have heard about this, but the UK Biobank is a huge study, observational study of people that have been followed for decades. Now, the average age of the population that they looked at was 57. And these individuals did not have dementia at the start of the study. Of this group, 18,000, a little over 18,000 people, or about 3.6% of them reported regular use of over-the-counter laxatives. 
And regular use was defined as using a laxative most days of the week during the month before the study. So most days of the week, say, for example, four to, you know, four to seven days, basically, of using laxatives. And then they were followed for 10 years. And over this average of about 10 years, 218 of those of people who regularly used laxative, or about 1.3% of them developed dementia. And of those who did not use any regular uh, use of laxatives, about 1,969 people, or 0.4% of them, developed dementia. And then after adjusting for factors, uh, for things like age, gender, education, some illnesses, some medication use, family history of dementia. And then the researchers essentially took all of these, adjusted the numbers, and they found that that people who use laxatives, 51% of them had increased risk of overall dementia compared to people who did not regularly mm-hmm. use laxatives. 51%. That's a pretty high number. It is. It is. Um, and then the risk of dementia also increased with the number of laxative types used. So if they used more than one, they actually had higher risk. For people using one type of laxative, the risk was 28% higher risk compared to 90% increased risk for people taking two or more types of laxatives. Yeah. I think inc- that's incredible. So um, the different types of laxatives uh, resulted in more risk for for dementia but there was one type of laxative that was the most that was deemed the most harmful and these were osmotic laxatives yeah. osmotic laxatives are basically types of laxative that don't allow water to be absorbed by your body and it basically just flushes a lot of fluid along with the stool from your gut. So be- before we go on, uh, there, there are different kinds of laxatives. There are the bulk forming laxatives, which means that uh, they give bulk so that the thing, uh, the, the stool flows uh, uh, more smoothly. There's osmotic las- laxatives, which means they pull in water so that the, the stool can uh, can flow better. Stimulant laxatives, which is, you know, that uh, the GI system, especially small and large bowel, they have this peristaltic movements at, uh, at which systematically moves the stool along uh, and the stimulants uh, at a molecular level, at a chemical level, help the mechanism of peristalsis. So that's a stimulant um, 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 uh, laxatives. And then there's the lubricant laxatives and that's self-descriptive. It means that it helps the the, the lining. Exactly. Like castor oil. Exactly. It helps the lining of the GI so it can flow and slide down the uh, GI system. Right. And then the saline laxative. Again, it's it's bulking, but with fluid, so that makes it softer. That's yeah. basically the, the the five different kinds of laxatives. Exactly. Miralax, yes, Suzanne. Miralax is an osmotic um, laxative. Um, I think uh, Metamucil is a bulk it is. laxative. It, it's a bulk so laxative. It basically it increases the uh, amount of bulk in your stool. Um, can, can you go back if you don't mind? Yeah, no, no, no problem. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to see what colase was because colase is a very common one that we give at the hospital. It's a and lubricant. that's a lubricant laxative, exactly. Um, Dolcolax and Senecote, uh, these are essentially stimulant laxative. Oh, so Correct. castor oil is not a uh, lubricant one. The lubricant was one is actually mineral oils and docusate sodium, which is colase. Fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. so there, there are different types of laxatives. And, and those mechanisms matter because the stimulant has a little more 
intrinsic, a little more active role, which means that it's going to work at the level of the neurotransmolecular as well as nervous system, whereas the bulking and the, and the lubricant is more passive way. Right. So you can see if there is a mechanism where how you affect the cells, how you affect the cell linings, how you affect the nervous system could have long-term effect on the nervous system, then those differences would matter. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So osmotic laxatives, the ones that was uh, that um, particularly heightened the risk of dementia um, is essentially lactulose and Miralax. And they draw fluids in. Right. Lactulose is usually used in very sick people. Correct. Um, Correct. I know that in the hospitals, we use it for people who have liver issues and liver failures and et cetera, which kind of points to underlying problems, underlying issues. In any case, we'll talk about that. So those were the numbers and they're kind of scary, you know, especially if, if just this number is projected to the communities and say people who use laxatives on a regular basis have a 51% higher risk of developing dementia. If they use one, the risk is 28%. If they use more than one, it's 90% increased risk uh, for two or more. And um, the, the osmotic laxatives increase the risk by 64%. So that's so that's the gist of it. And then um, when you look at the methodology and the discussion session section, you actually find out that uh, first of all, the biggest limitation that I encountered was the fact that dosage information for the laxatives were not available. Correct. We don't know how much they took. We just know the different kinds of laxatives they took and on how many particular days a week they took it. And I think that's a big, that's a big problem. It is. Obviously, it is. if you take a lot, that's going to be a major issue. Correct. As well as the fact that the, uh, all the different medical problems, underlying medical problems could not be accounted for, mm -hmm. or as we say, controlled for. So uh, one of the things that we worry about is the fact that these other underlying mechanisms may be the reason for dementia, as opposed to the laxative use. Exactly. Yeah. So let's let's talk about, you know, some of the reasons why people use a lot of laxatives. Not let's put away people who are very healthy and live healthy lifestyles and they may have some intrinsic GI issues. But for the most part, people in the United States take laxatives because of medication side effects. Correct. Medications such as um pain opioids, medications, yeah. opioids, they actually cause chronic constipation. Um allergy medications can cause uh, blood pressure medications can cause that. Um, some diabetes medication can cause constipation. Blood but pressure, diuretic medication. Diuretics, which, med yeah, absolutely. But you know, diabetes itself can actually cause constipation because of changes in the um, in nervous the nervous system. system, whether it's the autonomic nervous system or you know muscle muscle nerves that essentially cause the movement of our ball. Correct. I mean, each of these have different mechanisms. Uh, diabetes, like you said, it affects the nervous system of the GI tract. Um, uh, some of these like diabetic medications also affect the nervous uh, and, and uh, blood pressure medications, which are diuretic, then help, uh, affect the water content. Absolutely. Um, so all of these have different mechanisms and the underlying processes matter. Congestive heart failure, for example. Mm -hmm. For congestive heart failure, you give diuretics, which cause constipation. Well, was it the congestive heart failure that led to dementia? Yeah. Or was it the medication, the laxatives in the last month Absolutely. That, that, that caused the dementia? Absolutely. I, I wanted to bring the, uh, highlight the laxative abuse, too. That is a condition that people actually take laxatives to lose weight. 
Correct. Um, but I'm not sure if that is a prominent thing here. And we don't have a lot of data supporting that. But, you know, people actually take laxatives just to kind of start losing weight as well. And maybe that could contribute as well. Correct. So as you can see, there's a lot of other medical issues that weren't really highlighted in this paper. And um, a proxy of underlying medical issues was essentially laxative use. Correct. Right. Um, and so moving forward... Uh, the other thing that we uh, essentially um, realized was, obviously, I mean, hypothetically, you can say that regular regular laxative use can change the microbiome of the gut, can affect absorption of nutrients from our food, um, and it may even potentially um, cause, you know, dehydration, which in itself could be related to it. So all these other smaller manifestations of laxative use could also contribute to cognitive impairment as well. And the other big elephant in the room is people not eating enough fiber. Correct. Right? Absolutely. People not eating enough fiber. Who, who uses laxatives, it's disproportionately evident that people that have liar, lower fiber intake have much greater propensity for um, for constipation. Absolutely. And we know that when people don't eat a lot of fiber, essentially is a marker of them not eating healthy food, not enough vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts, seeds, and things of that nature, and maybe relying too much on processed foods for dementia or for, 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 uh, for their nourishment as well, which could lead to cognitive impairment later on as well. Absolutely. So if we had a whiteboard over here, you would probably see many little circles pointing towards constipation and then another line of laxatives and then another line leading to dementia. Yeah, but it's and, a very complex picture. Yeah, and, and research, especially epidemiological research, which is very incredibly valuable. So um, um, in, in, in today's environment, um, they try to negate one thing in order to strengthen their argument. But uh, and, and the thing they're trying to attack, they being whoever wants their point being uh, highlighted, is epidemiological data. Epidemiological data is invaluable. Yeah. It's how you look at it and, and how you take each element and, and how complex the data is. If it took into account um, intervening variables, it took into account confounding variables, uh, and, and the relationships therein, uh, for example, in this case, is constipation that led to dementia, or is it the fact that in between constipation and dementia is the underlying disease, which is either liver disease or congestive heart disease, or the degenerative disease, or diabetes, or insulin resistance, or medications, or pain, which actually has a more direct relationship with dementia than the medication used to uh, in the treatment of those diseases as well. So uh, that's the relationship that we have to look at. I know it's more complex, but I, I think we live in a time where we're all becoming more and more aware of the complexity of data, complexity of information, and complexity of life in general, and we find comfort in that in that complexity. Absolutely. And just to kind of extend your conversation about epidemiological data, um, even though uh, there are a lot of limitations and uh, it's very difficult uh, to look at relationship between element A and element B in an epidemiological research because there's so many other confounding factors in it. But if you see a, the, a variation of the same theme, if you see multiple lines of research showing the same thing over and over again, in that, in that perspective, epidemiological data, data has actually helped us so much. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason why we have public health measures against 
smoking is based on epidemiological Correct. studies. It's not cause causal, and, and uh, it's not a randomized case control study because yeah. you wouldn't be putting one group on cigarettes. That's unethical. Exactly. Uh, well, same and, for seatbelts. Exactly. As well. Yeah. So uh, these long-term data are their data are very very helpful. They give us a window into understanding relationship between variables and disease outcomes. Um, but it's also very important for us to be able to go into the methodology section and read it very well and see what all the other factors are. And, and it's important because papers like this one and the previous one we spoke about get highlighted all of a sudden. Laxatives cause dementia on on every news agency right. that puts that out. And that's worrisome at multiple levels. First of all, it, it, it degrades confidence in science because, first of all, that shouldn't even be, even be a worry because science in itself will last because it's an axiomatic and systematic process that's going to go forward. But uh, the, the public is going to suffer because they're going to say, oh, my gosh, there, there's too much inconsistency. So they fall back to the baseline um, or try to avoid the instead of a. Uh, uh, addressing the underlying problem, which is eat more fiber, they say, oh, let's avoid laxatives. And and it's actually the problem is we have a hypofibronemia. Uh, I've just created that word, but th there's too little fiber in our diet. There is Fibrine. significant yeah. uh, the, the diminution in fiber. There's too much meat and, 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 and byproducts like that that have been shown to cause uh, constipation as well as processed foods. And then uh, opioids. Um, we opioids have been invaluable in treatment of pain, but they've been overused as first line treatment for everything from sleep to anxiety to pain to everything else, which has a profound effect on our GI system. So that's the the the, the take we wanted to um, uh, bring to this paper and to this concept, which was in every media outlet that we saw this last week. Yeah, um, and uh, we wanted. To Give our take on it. Including the Neuroacademy. <clears throat> a lot of our community members had sent us messages about this paper. Okay. Um, in the meantime, Question. I think um, it's it's important for you to speak with your doctor. If you are on a laxative, this does not, um, you know, it should not cause any uh, alarm. Um, I think it's very important for you to speak with your doctor because sometimes, you know, laxatives can be quite helpful. Correct. And especially if you measure all your other risk factors. Um, and also, if you have constipation, that's not normal. Please have yourself checked and speak with your physician because you're not supposed to have constipation, even if you don't eat much. Correct. Especially if it's consistent or intermittent. There's something going on in the electrical system of your GI tract it's a, <clears throat> or the motility or the cellular level or the fact that the, the, there's not enough water in the system or the mucus is not lubricating well or the microbiomes have been affected. These not, are not small matters. These are significant health consequential matters that must be addressed. Absolutely. I'm going to go over the questions here and see if there's any question left here. And if you do have it, please go ahead and type it. Um, I think I may have actually answered most of them here. Uh, Magda says, I am usually once a day or more unless I do not eat enough fruits like apples, etc. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Apples are amazing. Yeah. You know, with the pectin and all the soluble fibers in it, it actually gets your gut going very, very well. Uh, Magda says, I had borderline anemia. Doctors did not know why. I had colonoscopy, but it looked okay. Uh, I have now a supplement of iron. That's good. I'm really glad that you actually got yourself checked and, sure. and did a colonoscopy. Suzanne says, Miralex is an osmotic laxative. Absolutely, it is. Um, Henderson families here, and uh, they say Miralax is one laxative that is used 
for colonoscopy? Is there one laxative that is better for colonoscopy? Not that it is taken frequently. I'm not sure about that, to be honest with mm -hmm. you. I think um, the osmotic laxative is given for a particular reason Correct. because it actually enhances the visibility uh, during colonoscopy. Um, but that is a very GI question for yeah. me. Amazing. Okay, that's basically it. So I think we should... Um, this was a good paper. Yes. Again, it looked at this relationship and uh, um, a great paper for us to understand the relationship between various factors in observational studies and not to get alarmed and move forward, understanding that these are issues that could arise and we have to address them, but also not to be alarmed too much. So we will have these conversations uh, every Monday. And um, uh, the, either it's going to be a paper or a topic or a question that somebody might have. And we're going to explore it a little more in depth with uh, with a, a science perspective. And if you have any thoughts that uh, you want explored here, please share with us. Suzanne says, uh, sorry, yeah, some questions absolutely. are flowing now. I eat 40 to 50 grams of fiber daily and I eat a wide variety of vegetables. This is not a new change, but I'm still constipated. Hey, Suzanne, I think you should speak with your physician. You should definitely speak with your physician, especially if you're doing so well as far as your fiber intake is concerned and for, for them to actually look at all the other factors in your life and figure it out. Glenda Stafford says, speak a moment about stimulants. Yeah, uh, uh, GI stimulants. Okay. So they're used, they're, they're not commonly used, but they're used in more um, emergent uh, situations. We, when I was doing uh, Parkinson's research in uh, NIH, we used um, uh, these uh, stimulants because in Parkinson's, the especially uh, advanced Parkinson's, constipation is 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 just devastating. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, there's no bowel movements and and the, the pain and the discomfort is just overwhelming. So it's uh, under certain circumstances that they use the stimulants to to help the cathartic almost um, uh, phenomenon to to help the bowel movements. Absolutely, and these can be. Um you know, the drugs that actually increase GI motility can be cholinesterase inhibitors, parasympathomimetics, domperidone, metoclopramide, bromopride. So, a, you know, a group of All the drugs that, that I'm aware been... of in Parkinson's. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Those are our neurology medication. Joanna says, how do I get off of uh, taking blood pressure medication, please? Joanna, that's a very serious question. You should not, first of all, uh, if you're on them, it's probably because you need them. Um and you can't get off of them until your blood pressure is normalized. So please speak with your physician. But usually our, our perception has been this. If blood pressure is mildly elevated and lifestyle changes can bring it down, then your doctor should be able to slowly and gradually wean you off of it by making sure that at each stage your blood pressure is measured so that it's not abnormal. Mm -hmm. um, but there are certain situations where people have some built-in plaques in their arteries, and no matter what they do, their blood pressure doesn't come down. So in those kind of situations, a touch of blood pressure medication is quite helpful. Uh, I personally have several patients that are probably the, the most um, uh, aggressive lifestyle uh, 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 implementers you can imagine. Uh, one of them is 83 years old, and he, there is nobody healthier than them uh, uh, that I've ever seen. As far as nutrition, they're meticulous. They carry their food in their own backpack. Mm -hmm. They're, they're um, a business person. They exercise religiously. They do everything neuro. So every, and, and by the way, that has saved them as far as cognition and health and everything else. They're, they're amazingly healthy. But just 
um, uh, recently something happened in a trip, usually what happens is in the in the kidney, the renin-angiotensin system, either an infection or viral infection, something damages that system, that regulatory system, and their blood pressure just went out of control. Despite the best of lifestyle, in fact, they had achieved great blood pressure with the lifestyle, but something happened in the kidney or in the adrenal system or somewhere there that uh, significantly affected their blood pressure. And now they're on better blood pressure medication for, for the rest of their life. And well, as far as we know, and, and that's fine because everything else they've taken care of, yeah. a, a, a lesional problem, a lesion at a part that a part of the body, either adrenal system or um, a renin-angiotensin tensin system or somewhere in the kidney where the blood pressure is being controlled uh, has been affected and that person is going to need blood pressure medication. But you have to be, this is a, like Aisha said, it's a very serious topic that needs to be closely addressed by somebody who knows blood pressure yeah, very well, hopefully a, general, a specialist. And once they've ruled out everything else, then they will tell you that you have to stay on a blood pressure medicine. And also, here's the bigger thing. Check your own blood pressure regularly, twice a day. I say this to everybody, even people who don't have blood pressure medicine, if they're past a certain age, check your blood pressure regularly. This is a thing that can all of a sudden sneak up on you and then you have these huge peaks and valleys that can affect you and by the time you find out it's too late. Mm -hmm. So check your blood pressure regularly, especially if you have a history of blood pressure. Yeah, absolutely. Terry had a question earlier. Um, Terry said, um, millions of people take psyllium daily. Is this a problem? My doctor said it's helpful for cholesterol. I don't think it's a problem because um, psyllium is a is a food. It's it's a bulk laxative. Um, it definitely, you know, because of its fiber, uh, fibrous nature, it can potentially help with cholesterol. And I think there's been some studies mm -hmm. that show that psyllium husk can help lower cholesterol. So I don't think it's a problem. I think it would be a problem if you replace if you replace your regular food with psyllium. Correct. So you know, uh, not you, Terry, but a lot of people think that they can eat whatever they want to and they just eat a little psyllium and they're good for the day. But you, you know, you neglect so many other micronutrients that come from whole foods by not eating them. So I hope that that's not, I'm sure it's not the case with you, but that's what the perception is. People just, you know, eat burgers and fries and then they have some psyllium husk in the morning and they think they're just exactly. fine and their cholesterol is going to lower that. I find that a little problematic. Um, Suzanne says, my doctor suggested Linzess for constipation, is this a risk for dementia? Uh, Linzess is not, it doesn't really act like a laxative. It's um, it's an agonist, it's a receptor agonist. Let me just uh, see, so linactylide. Yeah, and what happens is it, uh, it binds to a receptor and it stimulates the secretion of chloride and bicarbonate in the intestinal lumen and it increases the fluid and it helps with the transition. There hasn't been any studies of looking at Linzess with cognitive impairment or dementia, but it is a newer, more advanced form of a quote-unquote laxative because it actually works at the receptor level and it doesn't really you know, cause dehydration or any other major side effect that other typical laxatives would. The lesson here in this paper or how we analyze it is not so much the laxative, but the underlying cause of the constipation that, that makes laxatives nece a necessity. It's critical that we ourselves first, but also our doctors, uh, address constipation uh, with a little more diligence than just say, oh, you have constipation, here's a medicine. If you have a constipation and it's regular, and it's not going away, 
that's a con- that's a problem that must be addressed at at the causal level. Why are we having these constipations? Mm-hmm. If it's diet, then address it with diet, and it still doesn't change. Then what's the underlying medical problem that's not being addressed, or is, we we're not recognizing? That's yeah. the thing to focus on. Yeah, um, that, yeah, that's an important lesson from this paper, actually. Absolutely, for me at least. Suzanne, I hope I, I hope you can speak with your doctor about this, and hopefully you can figure out why why you're having constipation. Absolutely. All right, my friends, this was a 30-minute quick pop-up. I hope you like this format of the discussion of the week where we talk about a paper. Um, Obviously, I sent you the PDF or the articles, and this recorded video is going to be placed in the Neuroscience Club, so you can watch it again if you'd like to. Thank you so much for everyone who joined, and we will see you next week. Absolutely. So you will get it in podcast as well. You'll get the podcast transcripts later on, and then you'll have a blog of this, a shorter version summary of this as well. Um, All of this will be available to you. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you for joining.